Hi, this is Carol Bayer Sager, and you're listening to Vicki Abelson's The Road Taken. Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson. I wrote a book called Don't Jump. Andy Stone is my heroine, and she was addicted to everything pretty much except heroin. Oh my God! Oh yes! She just totally captures the excitement of, of rock stars. And famous athletes and famous comedians. Sort of an insider's view from the outside. The warmth and wit of Vicky's writing knocked me out. In, in a good way, not, not like Cosby. Too soon? Vicky wrote a book? Vicki Abelson's long-awaited new book, Don't Jump, is finally here. Don't miss it. Available on Amazon. Hey, DJ. So I, I reconnected recently with someone that I knew long ago, and I realized I had a video of us. So I'm trying to figure out where it is and how to find it, and I find it, and it's on a VHS tape. Do you even know what a VHS tape is, DJ? I do. You do. Okay. Did you have a VCR when you were a kid? Yeah, top. Okay, top loader. Oh, God. <laughs> well, I have a bunch of my memories on VHS tapes, and I've got to transfer that shit over to a DVD because I can't watch. I don't have a VCR. I mean, I actually do have a VCR in my <laughs> closet, but it's not hooked up, and I don't plan on hooking it up. And Lord knows what, what those I, – I wouldn't even know how to use it anymore. I wouldn't trust it. And, and eat right. up your tape. Yeah, definitely. It would probably eat it up. So anyway, everybody out there – Dust off your old VHS and camcorder cassette tapes and get them transferred to DVD by MP84 Video and Photo Archiving because I know I'm going to do it. So if you have an adult child that tells you that they had a crappy childhood, you can whip out the DVD and prove them wrong. Much cheaper than therapy. Call MP84 at 310-753-753. 5799. They'll do free pickup and delivery anywhere in LA, and I'm sure you can work out shipping from anywhere else. They also do photo slideshows for any occasion, with or without music, for rock bottom prices. Call 310 753 5799. You'll be glad you did. And tell them Vicky sent you, and you'll get a free hour in the first 10 hours transferred. MP84, transfer that stuff. Welcome to Vicki Abelson's broadcast, The Road Taken, Celebrity Maps to Success. Vicki's the creator and host of the renowned celebrity-driven literary salon, Women Who Write, and the author of Amazon bestseller, Don't Jump. Here's Vicki. Hey, DJ. Hey, Wheezy. How are you guys doing tonight? Very well. How are you doing, Vicki? Great. How are you? I, I, I am doing okay. I, um, I have spent the day reading. Um, which I can't remember the last time I did that. What you reading? I am reading They're Playing Our Song. Which, <gasps> I read it. Okay, Carol Bayer Sager's new book, her memoir. Fiendishly good book. Oh my God, I'm telling you, like I expected to pick it up and to skim it so that I would be prepared for tonight's show because I just got it the day before yesterday and, and yesterday was a crazy day so I wasn't able to get to So I, I read a little the first day, but... Uh, just a few pages. So today I picked it up I- intending to skim it for a couple of hours Can't and be done. instead pick the thing up six hours later. I mean, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm more than halfway through the book. I am just loving it. But what I wanted to talk to you guys about before we get to our guest, tonight's guest, is how are you as far, how much do you disclose 
Carol is so forthcoming, and I love that about her. I lo- she pulls no punches. She holds nothing. I I don't think she's holding anything back. She's she's putting it out there. I mean, exactly what she thinks about people, where she has reservations about people, what she loves about them, the things she doesn't, their flaws, their her their irrational fears. Uh, her she's so honest about her own stuff. Which I'm going same. Which same. You, yes, <laughs> uh, totally. I mean, you know, we'll get into all of that with Carol, but oh my God. You know, just her whole thing about food, about eating, and 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 fear of flying, and just all kinds of stuff that that um, I I totally relate to and understand. But my question for you right now, before before we get into all of that, is how much do you disclose, like on social media? You know, I wrote a book, and I chose in my book, and don't jump to write it as a fictionalized memoir, so that I could be free to speak to speak really freely about other people because I, I had no reservation about talking about my own issues, but I felt protective of others. And I thought if I was going to use real names, then I was going to start um, uh, censoring myself. And so I didn't want to do that. And I didn't want to take anybody else down. Not that I'm saying Carol has, I think she's been really fair. Um, you got to be a lot more careful when you're talking about other people, that's for sure. You do. And also, I had an added issue because I am in a program of recovery. And one of the traditions, this is the real reason why I did mine as a fictional memoir. Well, not the real reason, but it's one of the big reasons why I did mine as a fictionalized memoir is because in my program of recovery, one of the principles, one one of the traditions of that program is that we don't mention it with our own name, right? Mm-hmm. There's anonymity issues. Ah. So I could talk about, so I would therefore not have been able to mention the program, which I felt might be of service to someone out there if I did. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so if I didn't mention it, oh my God, maybe people wouldn't find it. They wouldn't know what it was. So I thought it was more important to be able to mention it, less important to associate it to me, Vicki Abelson. Mm-hmm. So I could have this other character mm-hmm. talk freely about her addiction and her recovery and maybe be of service to someone out there, maybe, maybe not, but, and also not break the tradition. So that was a big issue for me. So freedom within anonymity is kind of something that you were taught through the program. Exactly. So, well, I read Burt Bacharach's book, so maybe that gave Carol a little bit more freedom because she could say, all right, well, here's my side of the story. There you go. And if you're Burt Bacharach, don't bother going to the back and looking in the index. You're <laughs> just read the whole book. <laughs> well, it's going to be really interesting to hear what she has to say about that. If 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 it was a reaction because he had written his book, and uh, you know, like I know there are a lot of celebrities that have thrown people under the bus. Carol very thoughtfully, I think she does a lot of service to us by being really honest about what the failures of the relationships were and the dynamic of the personalities. I I, I think it's helpful. You know, I've been in love with a narcissist. Um, I know what that experience is. And it, I, I don't know that I at certain points in my life could have defined it as such. Mm -hmm. Mm. So it's really helpful. I think to people who are reading it and go, Oh, I'm married to a, I didn't even know. Oh my God, I'm married to a narcissist. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. It's not me. It's him. (laughs) But, you know, so I'm wondering, though, because now in real life, um, I I don't censor myself. I don't fictionalize my life. I have come out. I am completely out on the Huffington Post and on Facebook and Mm -hmm. on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And 
even I write for some um, recovery journals, and when I do there, I use a um, a pen name. Ah, what is that called? A pseudonym. Thank you. I forgot that word. I use a pseudonym. It's because it has a P at the beginning, it which weirds <laughs> everybody out. I uh, No, I'm just, yeah, I didn't have my coconut oil this morning. I had iced <laughs> coffee instead. So I, I use a pseudonym when I'm writing there to, to observe, but... With you guys, so so DJ, when you're, I've read, I, I read a Facebook post of yours today that, but but I know when you're on <laughs> Facebook, you tend to, to be fairly honest. Are, are you? What's I, your take on it? I am, and because of that, I actually don't post too often because uh, it's it could be a little too revealing, I guess. Uh, and what do you? What's uh, the what's the consequence of that to you for you? Well, what stops you? I think there's sort of a responsibility on social media for everybody. Like, you really can influence people. And you can also, so you could use it as a tool uh, to really help other people. But if you keep just, you know, if somebody reads your response to something five times in a row and they don't like it every time, then they kind of like. They start to, they'll start to skip over your post. You'll get skipped over and you kind of, so I kind of pick and choose my battles. Mm -hmm. So you're doing that so that you won't lose your audience? Basically, yeah. Okay. Oh, because for business, you need your audience to be behind you. Is that, is it like a marketing decision? I I guess it's partly marketing and partly just like, you know, I'm one of those people that I like everybody to like me Ah. (laughs) as much as possible. That's another issue (laughs) we're going to talk about with with Carol mm -hmm. because she's in a program for people, places and things. But yet, possibly what you read today, I think, uh, I think I know what you're talking about. Probably a lot of people very strongly disagree with it. So I don't shy away from necessarily making an enemy here and there, but um, I don't want to keep on doing it over and over and over if, I, well, I, I, if yeah. I'm that honest. I, I think what's interesting, and Wheezy, I know that you're very honest on social media and you speak, you're a straight shooter, you say what's on your mind. Um, I don't think you sense, I don't get the feeling that you censor yourself. Well, I feel like social media sort of gives everyone their own radio station and your job is to inform or entertain. You have to be interesting. You can't just write Roll Tide, you know, if Alabama is your favorite team. You you know, you, you have to inform or entertain. You know, I agree with that to a, a large extent, Louise, but for me... I also use social media to express my truth. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's not to entertain. Sometimes it's to inform. It will inform and sometimes it's to connect. Okay. Sometimes what I want is human connection. Mm. I want to bear my pain or my joy and I want to experience it with you guys. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I, I need to be validated mm-hmm. or I ch- I, I'm seeking validation. Sometimes I'm seeking empathy. Sometimes I just want to share joy, you know, joy. Um, sometimes you just want to ask if there's a reliable locksmith in your neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know something? There's never been a question that I've asked on the Facebook that I haven't gotten an answer for. When I need help with things, like if I can't figure out, like DJ, I actually need you to help me figure out why I can't get Flash Player. But I mean, if I went on <laughs> Facebook right now and said I've been trying to reinstall Flash for like a week there'll be 10 people that'll get on there and they will troubleshoot it with me no and nine of them will say don't install Flash. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean it's it's really true it's it's amazing what we can do there and which brings me to tonight's guest because mm-hmm. Carol is so forthcoming with her truth in in a quest I think to connect to tell her story to be validated but I think she also does a tremendous service 
um, by sharing her truths because she's so honest, self-deprecating, um, so fearless mm-hmm. to share her fears ah. that that's really brave. Yeah. Okay, so for those of you who don't know, Carol Bayer Sager has written more than 400 songs. She's been nominated for over 15 awards. She's won an Oscar, two Golden Globes, a Grammy for Song of the Year. She recorded three solo albums with Marvin Hamlish. She wrote the hit Broadway musical, They're Playing Our Song, which I saw with Robert Klein and Lucy Arnaz a million years ago. I love it. With Peter Allen. She co-wrote half of the songs used in the Broadway musical The Boy from Oz, which starred Hugh Jackman, and that told the story of Peter's life. She's a member of the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and she was awarded a star on Hollywood Hollywood Boulevard. Her memoir just dropped. They're playing our song that I've been talking about ad nauseum, and you must get. It hit the New York Times bestseller list like as soon as it came out. It's just phenomenal. I can't say enough about it. I'm so excited to welcome Carol Bayer Sager. Hi, Carol. Welcome to The Road Taken. Oh, thank you. Hi, Vicki. You know, Carol, you are my first guest that I do not not know in real life. Ah. We've been doing a bunch of shows, but uh, pretty much everyone that's been on, all the celebrities that I've had on, have either been in my living room or I know them from other, you know, I do this um, literary salon, which I am so, I cannot wait to have you do Women Who Write. But in the meantime, I'm great. It sounds fun. It's very fun. And so, so I have a personal relationship with with all the guests we've had so far, you're my first person that I'm meeting for the first time on the air. But I feel well, that's good. It's a new experience for both of us. <laughs> it, it, yes, and and what's wonderful, Carol, is that I feel like I know you because I have spent the entire day with you. We were just discussing this in the in the in the little introduction we did. But I have been reading your book. I cannot put it down. I am loving it so much. Uh, for those of you out there who didn't hear last time when we were talking about it earlier, it's They're Playing Our Song. It's Carol's memoir that just dropped recently. A New York Times bestseller, Amazon bestseller. Oh my God, deservedly so. And I'm going to get... I'm going to turn it all over to you to talk, but just just what I what I love about it, Carol, is that I read a lot of celebrity memoirs. It's kind of what I do. And yours, unless I'm crazy, you really wrote this. You really wrote this, didn't you? Yes, I did. You did. And I can tell that you did. And you come through um, your your personality. I mean, I feel like I know you and I adore you. Oh, I like that. I, you know, my whole purpose in my, I guess it wouldn't even be a division between my personal life and my professional life, but it has been to connect, you know, to begin to be able to connect to myself and then, of course, to connect to other people. So, you know, songwriting, of course, the great thing is if someone says, oh, I, that song really helped me through a difficult time, but hearing you say that you feel like you know me and you're connected to me is, and I to you is, is uh, why I wrote the book. And it's phenomenal because I feel like I've been sitting in a room with you all day and you've been telling me your story. That's exactly... And you're not bored yet? <laughs> I, oh, forget bored. I can't wait till we're done here so I can finish. Oh, that's <laughs> no, great. I'm serious. Makes me really happy. And this is... Uh... So, so, Carol, so, so 
I know because I've been reading the book. Our listeners out there, some of them will have read your. And Wheezy, by the way, Louise Palanca, who's uh, the studio, the station manager here, um, read your book and oh, um, and loved it. Yes, Wheezy, you can yes, tell I devoured your book, oh. and uh, I am a big pop song fiend, and I was captivated. I too feel like I know you. And oh, so great? I would love to bring you brownies and discuss <laughs> further. I may have some questions. Well, we, we have to bring Carol rice cakes from whatever. Rice cakes ah. with tuna, which we're going to talk about. Well, I'm, because say, I'm, in, I'm in my period now since I always have some kind of diet going. Oh. But I wouldn't call this a diet. This is the healthiest I've gotten to a non-diet diet. And what, so what are you um, eating? Well, I'm eating nothing white. Oh, God. Like no white flour. No. no but that's... And sugar, no what? No sugar, nothing white. Yeah, that's yeah. That's really a big thing of it. And for me, that's really hard because I'm like a carb addict. Yeah, you know? me too. But here's the crazy thing, and I promise you this is true. You go one week without sugar and without anything white, and you're hating every day of it, and you're thinking, I can't do this. And then in one week, it's like a miracle. You stop craving you know, I th- I think that's true with everything in life, Carol. You, anything you, you cut that, out, yeah. Anything you cut out, you stop thinking about. You st- yeah, you stop. Yes, because if it's out, then it's kind of out. I don't know. I I've, I'm usually no good with diets at all, and I'm trying to think of this one not so much as a diet, but maybe it's a way to live because and occasionally. But you see, it's that occasional because that occasional is I just taste something. And then it's like, I'm back into it. And so I saw the picture in the book of you as a little girl, and it, it surprised me to see. Yeah, I, I was chubby. I was chubby reasonably too. chubby. Yeah, I had, chub, I had chub going on. But, uh, but I've seen the pictures of you through all of the years that I've known of you, and you've always been thin and glamorous. Always. Well, not always. I mean, always compared to that photo, but always with a range of about 14 pounds that I could go up or down. And... I know that's not a lot of pounds if you're sitting there and listening at five foot ten, but I am five foot one, mm-hmm. and I might have even shrunken a little, but I don't want to think <laughs> about it. And and I wear these enormously high wedge heels that I'll probably yes. one day you'll hear. Oh, that's a shame. That's how she went. She fell off her wedge. <laughs> <laughs> but but nevertheless, I I I just have this thing about feeling like a like like thumbelina you know so i've always wanted to be tall so uh anyway that's another whole story but it's uh, and it's an interesting story too because i noticed <laughs> that that through line through i i just got to a part where you were saying that you wished you would have worn your cowboy boots when you met bob dylan but that you they wouldn't have been high enough <laughs> that's like, right okay i tried to meet him looking very faux faux rock and roll dylan-esque i <laughs> My jeans on, those I always have on, but had on my jeans, I put on this black leather jacket that I think I've worn one other time in my life <laughs> with studs and things that just isn't me, but yeah. I wanted it to be for a minute and a half, and I bought it, you know. So, and and because I couldn't wear those little cowboy boots, because they only give you about an inch and a half, and I was looking for four inches at least, oh, God. I had these uh, wedge shoes Oh my God! And and his well, when I'm kind of going all over the place, That's but okay. his property, his property was like he looked. You know, his property <laughs> was all 
kind of beat up and and unkempt and you know there was like a pebble here and a rock there and a piece of <laughs> and a and a piece of soil popping up there and I'm like trying to navigate as though I'm like graceful and, and on your wedges <laughs> on my wedges and thinking I if only I had just walked into a nice house he rode at back of the barn you know <laughs> but I was riding with Bob Dylan you that's that a great kind of story. Amazing. Yeah, I, it's, had to, it's, I kept saying to me, to myself, I kept saying to me, I kept saying to me, <laughs> I'm writing with Bob Dylan. That's so weird. <laughs> it's so great, and I, and I love your humility throughout the whole thing, and I love the fact that you're a fan, like I'm a fan, when you're meeting these people. The when you when well, you met certain Elizabeth. ones, yeah, yeah, certain ones. God, I mean, I waited. I'm nowhere jumping all over, but I waited. Uh, Oh, like thirty years to write with Carol King, <sighs> and when I finally did, it had the same thrill for me. The moment she played the piano, and I heard her voice, the mm. voice that I, made me want to write songs, and I heard her voice singing words that I was writing with her, my piano with her hands on it, and and it was like, oh my God, this is so fantastic. I didn't even know we weren't writing a great song. <laughs> I just, I just was so enthralled and in love and in, you know, and in passion that I thought for sure it was. I didn't even think was it a great song, but I did run around playing it the next day on my car radio, car <laughs> D slot, and um, and I don't know anyone loved it quite as much as me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so that's so that's what I want to talk about with you, Carol. So so where did your where did your love of music? How did this start for you? Where, where when did I? I mean, I I know the camp thing, and and I love that too. I like made notes of things that I related to about uh, that you wrote. By the way, Groovy Kind of Love, one of my favorite songs of all time. Um, oh, thank you. So my favorite did, version was when Phil Collins re-recorded it. Ah. And did his version, which was slower and sexier. Mm. Just, I, I liked it a lot more. Isn't that great? But, mm-hmm. so, okay, so now, how did, how did it start for you? How, how did you first realize, I, I can do this, this is what I want to do. Did you, how old were you? What, what happened? Well, I was quite young. When, well, when I was very young, maybe like six, mm-hmm. I had a ventriloquist act. <laughs> six or seven and I was very good. And I realized <laughs> that, no, I had a little wooden, um, what was it? Was it a Howdy Doody doll? Oh, sure. Right, Howdy Doody doll. But it was a puppet, you know, his mm-hmm. mouth opened and I could talk to him. And, and I realized it was easier for me to express feelings through the dummy. Ah. It wasn't me. Mm-hmm. So the natural ex- next extension of that became poems that I would write. And then I started, that was very short-lived, because then I started writing lyrics to my camp songs. Mm-hmm. And everybody would sing them around the campfire. And then I started writing li- lyrics to other people's hits on the radio. And then, <laughs> so do you, do you remember school. the do you remember the first one that you did? I, I think you even mentioned it in the book. Um, yes, I, my mother was not um, the perfect mother. Mm. Let's say at the very least, she was 
pretty crippled with fear and anxiety. And, um, and my idea of a perfect mother, this shows you how unnurtured I was, was Lucille Ball <laughs> from I Love Lucy. <laughs> I mean, I didn't, I didn't know from I Remember Mama, you know, or, or the Brady Bunch. No, my idea of a perfect mother was Lucille Ball. And, and I wrote a song to, that was a big hit at the time called Wishing Ring, and I wrote, if I had a wishing ring, I'd only wish for just one thing, that Lucy, oh, Lucy, was my mom. <laughs> and, of course, I never played it for my mom, so yeah. I feel bad. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Okay, so you were writing, you were writing, changing lyrics to songs that were on the radio, and when did you... So when I got to high school, mm-hmm. I met a girl, her name was Sherry Harway, and uh, she lives in Palm Beach now, and she has a gift shop, and mm. <laughs> she's very happy, and mm-hmm. um, she, she and I started writing songs in high school, and the fact is I lived a, 10 blocks away from the heart of the music business at the time, which was Tin Pan Alley and Brill, the Brill Building. Right. And um, because we were 15-year-olds writing songs, which today would not be that amazing, but at the time was very um, unusual, mm-hmm. um, we ha- the minute we put one foot in the door, we were in, because we could go from the people at the, in the old days, the Brill Building and what they called Tin Pan Alley, literally knocked on door to door to different publishers and played their music and either was told, hey, we'll take that song or, no, that's not what we want right now. Mm -hmm. And so I had a piano teacher who happened to have had a hit instrumental, Mm -hmm. Petticoats of Portugal, and he knew someone, he knew a publisher. Mm -hmm. It happened to be called the Mills Brothers, and that's how we got our foot in the first door. Mm-hmm. And in the music business, everybody's changing jobs every other moment. So if you're in one door, soon you're in a second and a third and a fifth and an eighth. And we got a recording, we got a recording contract and we got a publishing contract mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. for $25 a week, which I thought was a staggering amount of money. <laughs> I really did. I mean, who pays? I would have paid them $5 right. a week to yeah. let me do it. So... Um, that's how it all began. What uh, was your... Sherry, what was Sherry, your... Met, Sherry met somebody when she was in junior college, and he didn't want her to write all the time. So she said, I'm going to go with Kenny. And I said, oh, all right, well, bye. And, uh, and that led me to Screen Gems and Tony Wine, and that was the first hit of Groovy Kind of Love. And so that's a quick version of... Not so quick to tell you, but it didn't seem so quick, but a rather shortened version of how it happened. No, 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 yeah, and, and, I, and I, read, I read that story. This, Yeah, I mean, it's phenomenal. What, what was your intent? When you, when you were first embarking on this, did you have a big picture? Did you have a goal? Did you have, or were you I just knew in the I wanted to be. I wanted to be a songwriter. Okay. And I also should probably mention that, like my mother, mm-hmm. and maybe from my mother, <laughs> perhaps it was one of her legacies to me, I was filled with fear, mm-hmm. filled with anxiety, filled with terror. And songwriting was the only aisle or lane or channel 
that I was completely free of my anxiety. And wow. When I, was, when I was writing a song, I wasn't dying of leukemia. <laughs> I wasn't afraid I had MS. I'm, I'm completely serious. I know. I, those, I... those diseases were as real to me wow. as if, God forbid, I had them. Mm. And, and I, that's how I would stop myself from living. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of like, a, I say this in the book, um, but I felt somehow that long ago I made a Faustian bargain with the devil. You give me a fantastic life and I promise you I won't enjoy it. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Oh. But it's really kind of quite a deal. And yeah. that's why I say, sometimes even in interviews, I say it's really important that people get don't compare your insides to anybody else's outside. Right. Because I believe if I was looking from the outside at my life at any various point, in, you know, when I had a groovy kind of love, when I met Marvin Hamlish and wrote Nobody Does It Better and playing our song, the, the show, when I was with Burt Backrack and, oh, my God, don't they look like a romantic couple? Mm-hmm. I would bet that there were a ton of women out there who gladly trade places and want my life. Yeah. But I'm saying that so much of so many of those years one I wasn't fully in my life. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't experiencing it with the joy that it sounds like when I when I tell you about it I go, "Wow, that's <laughs> a fantastic life." But I was not a, a part of it in a in any real sense. I I had a therapist who once said to me, you know, Carol, um, you're not afraid of dying. You're afraid of living. Mm. And I think one of the reasons I wrote this book was to share those feelings mm-hmm. with readers because sometimes other I know from writing songs how, and I know from my own life how alone we can sometimes feel. And, you know, part of the reason for the book, one is to, you know, just put my life out there for you and be honest and Mm -hmm. tell you, you know, my journey. But two is like maybe there are women or men out there who go, wow, I I can't believe she felt like that. I mean, look at her, you know. Absolutely. We were just talking about that. So those things don't really bring you a true sense of yourself. They don't bring you an identity. They don't bring you, uh, they don't bring you love it to a place where you're loving yourself or where you're, you know, supporting yourself and, and encouraging yourself. They don't bring any of that. What, what did make you happy through the journey? What, what were things that, that did bring you genuine well, there happiness? Were moment, let me say, there were momentary, oh right. my God, moments, which, you know, that I would be lying to say that it wasn't unbelievably thrilling yeah. to be married to Bert Backrack and win a Grammy with mm-hmm. him for That's What Friends Are For. Mm-hmm. Know that the money was going to AIDS research because I was best friends with Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah, which is pretty surreal Just in itself. hear that, you yeah. know. Yeah. Married to Bert Backrack, mm-hmm. who, you know, I grew up looking at him and thinking, oh my God, he's like movie star handsome, mm-hmm. you know. And my best friend now is Elizabeth Taylor, well, close, let me say close, close friend. Elizabeth Taylor, who I went to movies and said, 
oh, my God, she's the most beautiful woman in the entire world. I mean, and I now have these two gorgeous people, and I'm still feeling like, oh, man. I mean, I ha- how do I, how do I, like, not about Elizabeth, because mm-hmm. there was no, but how do I look like I belong with Bert? Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I had, I was flat-chested. I immediately got small, very, very small. I made them very <laughs> small implants, but I wanted to have a little something there that, you know, because he had just been married to Angie Dickinson. Which is a lot to live up to for any woman, yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. anyone knows who she is anymore. Mm-hmm. Her legs were insured for a million dollars, yes. which at the time was a lot of money. Hell yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of like all the insecurities I had before then but were more manageable with Marvin because he didn't look like Bert. Yeah. Um, and this is me at my superficial best, of course. <laughs> but, you know, I, I was so enamored of Bert and what he looked like that I don't even think I realized that he was a little boring <laughs> until like four years into our marriage. <laughs> Maybe a little before that. <laughs> but I was so focused on, oh, he's I once said to him, Bert, you are just so handsome. And he said, uh, because he speaks in the tempo in which he writes, you know, Bert Backrack wrote in all of these, like, seven, eight, seven, ninth, you know, four, fifth, and a half, you know, like, like, like cat sizes. He, he said, uh, hey, baby, um, you know, if you... Uh, if you think I'm a handsome man, you should have uh, seen me ten years ago. <laughs> and I went, oh, my. <laughs> well, I should have went, oh, my. <laughs> but, like, we have something here that might be a little. But, no, no. I just thought, wow, I can't imagine he could look better than this. <laughs> so, Carol, how how was it for you to... You know, I wrote a, a a memoir, but I fictionalized it a, a lot because I'm in a pro- program of recovery that requires that I not break tradition, and so I was able to speak more freely that way. How was it for you to 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 write this book, to tell your truths, which you do seemingly to me uncensored, which I'm so impressed with? And we were just talking about the fact that I do think that your book is of service to people. I mean, just pointing out being married to a narcissist and what that looks like, there are probably people out there that don't realize that, that are blaming themselves for the disconnect in their relationships. That's right. And, um, That's right. So I ha- certainly blamed myself. Yeah. I mean, so I, can, I, can, I think other people might too. So was it was it a difficult decision for you, or as 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 Weezy said earlier, was it made easier for you because Bert wrote his memoir and you were then telling your story? Like, oh, you mean was it it made easier for me to write this? Yeah. Well, I was aware that Bert wrote his memoir because he did a very interesting thing. Well, he didn't write his memoir. He talked to a man, <laughs> a writer. Okay. No, I'm not. I'm not making a yeah. judgment about this. I mean, yeah. not everybody's a writer. Right. He's certainly not. He never wrote the words to the songs. Why is he going to now suddenly write a, a you know, the great, great autobiography? I mean, it's very natural that he would talk to a writer. Right. Just he would play his music for me, a lyricist. Right. Right. <laughs> so, um, 
Anyway, um, he allowed the writer to go and talk to all of his ex-wives, mm-hmm. who were plentiful. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and the writer then came to me, mm-hmm. asked me very uh, direct questions, which I answered very directly, mm-hmm. and he transcribed this and showed it to Bert. Now, I don't know if Bert ever bothered to really read it mm-hmm. or not, but if he did, he was very generous in allowing his ex-wives to speak as we did. Because mm-hmm. even then, I was no longer married to Bert, and I was able to look, look more, you know, with more... Uh, objectivity. That would be exactly the word. <laughs> it would be objectivity. Mm-hmm. You're not right for Carol Bayer Sagan. <laughs> oh, yay! <laughs> so, um, anyway, in the book, I'm quoted exactly as I spoke to this writer, mm-hmm. and which was a little bit like what I say about Bert in this book, mm-hmm. in my book. Mm-hmm. And also, Angie was quoted. Mm-hmm. And Angie even said in the book, Bert is a narcissist. Mm-hmm. I mean, she actually said, Bert is a narcissist. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's a big surprise that I had no problem saying that in my book. But mm-hmm. what I also think is fair, though, is... And someone said this about it, you know, what they said that I shined a light on a lot of um, a lot of brutal truths, sort of. Absolutely. But, that, but but no light was shined as bright as the light I shined on my that I lit myself with. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's what I think allows me to say what I say about being married to Burton. By the way, I try to have some humor about it as well because some of it today to me is actually funny. You were you're very funny in the book, and <laughs> and even you know yeah. even as you're going through it and you're you're seemingly in real time in the situations, it's very very funny. And you're and you're very and you are very so I I don't I don't even want to use the expression self deprecating because I I think you were being I'm very self deprecating. You are, but, but you're 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 but not so much anymore. Good. And I try not to apologize for myself when I arrive in a room, but, <laughs> you know, but you won't see me arriving in my um, Pumas or my Yeezy boots. <laughs> Wait, who was it that was trying to get, was it Marvin that was, somebody was trying to get you to wear sneakers, who was it? Oh yeah, the guy I dated hoping the pain of Bert would go away, <laughs> he said to me, why don't you just put on a pair of sneakers that really like to see you in a pair of sneakers. Not that I'm trying to change you. you know? <laughs> yeah, not that I'm really. Oh, my God. Yeah. All right, so so let's go back again to the music for a minute. So you so you start writing these songs, and very young. How old are you when you have a hit with Groovy Kind of Love? You're, you're young. I think I was nine, 19 turning 20. So that had to be pretty crazy. And were you a teacher at that time? I know that you no, became no, a teacher. Groovy Kind of Love, I was... 20, turning 21, and I was just teaching. I was just starting to teach at Mabel Dean Bacon in New York. Um, and tell us why you did that. Well, first of all, my parents, who very rarely agreed on anything mm-hmm. regarding me, both agreed that, you know, they didn't know any successful songwriters, mm-hmm. and even though they both thought it was wonderful that I was getting some attention writing songs. They didn't think that was a career you could count on. So mm-hmm. they, 
they wanted me to do what a lot of nice Jewish girls did mm-hmm. in growing up in New York, mm-hmm. um, which was get a, get a license to teach. Mm-hmm. And so I did, very obediently. And I taught um, a girls voca- at a girls' vocational high school. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, I, I was teaching there for $5,100 a um, what is it? A year, yeah. A year, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I got a check in the mail for $35,000 for writing a B-side of a monkey's album. <laughs> and it was like, I mean, the, you know, for me, that immediate uh, shock of, wait a minute, $5,200, $5,500, I mean, how does that compare to 55000 I mean, it's like, I yeah. couldn't compute. I, my mind just couldn't even compute the difference between those numbers. Mm-hmm. And one was helping people. Mm-hmm. One was, you know, helping children learn. I mean, that's so important. And the other was like, oh, I can bang that out for you. You know, it was like <laughs> ridiculous to me. But I did choose to stay with the songwriting because it is what I love. And how did your parents, w- w- did your parents, did they acknowledge your talent? Did they did they appreciate your talent? Did they like your songs? What was that like? Yes. They I did. would say that even my mom. Mm-hmm. But you see, something happened between the time I was writing songs that, that um, people were starting to like mm-hmm. and before that time. And that's that my father died. Mm-hmm. My father had suffered from heart disease um, from when I was 10 years old. And... Consequently, every time I heard an ambulance, I thought it was coming to take my dad mm-hmm. away. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was the, you know, more consistently loving parent. Mm-hmm. Well, always loving. It's just I couldn't take in his love because it would make my mother jealous and she'd get angry. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want her to get angry. So here it was that triangle of mm-hmm. she wanted his love. He wanted to give me, me his love because mm-hmm. he was easier relating to a baby. She wanted to be the baby, so she hated me because mm. she was jealous that I was the baby in the triangular mm-hmm. thing, which I guess I was supposed to be since I was just a baby. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, was a, it was a thing where I ended up with no love because mm. when I sat on my father's lap, I'd jump up in terror when she'd walk in the room because oh I God. wanted her to love me, not hate me. And... Um, so I couldn't take in his love. And she was so erratic with her love. If I did something that pleased her, she loved me. You know, mm-hmm. if, I, if I looked a little fat, I mean, she told me, walk behind me, fatty. You're embarrassing. So, I mean, you know, and I don't hold her responsible. Certainly not, not today. I mean, first of all, if she, that's how I start my book, sort of, if she wasn't who she was, there's no way that I would have had the need to be seen and heard. So I probably would never have found my path. Is that what it was for you, Carol? Was, was songwriting a, a way, way to, be... to be heard, mm-hmm. of course. Mm-hmm. A way to be, and be heard without having to take full responsibility because someone else was singing my words. Ah. To the ventriloquist act. <laughs> <laughs> Except you did, you did eventually record your own music and have... Have a hit. I, you, did. Right? I was, yeah. But I was so frightened about that. I mean, I, 
I did it because all my co-writers were doing it, you know. Mm -hmm. But, of course, they were more real singers. And I don't consider myself a singer-singer. I think I'm allowed to sing the songs I wrote because I have my own interpretation of them. Right. And I think that sometimes that touches another person. Mm -hmm. But I would never do my version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. (laughs) (laughs) There are many that I would recommend you listen to before my singing. Uh, So that's the advantage of being a songwriter. They signed me because they thought they might get some hit songs out of me. I mean, they allow me to record my own albums. And so, so when you were, when you, okay, so you started out, you had this hit very young, you gave up teaching because you started making money as a songwriter. And by the way, one of your early partners, last name was Pincus, which by the way is my mother's maiden name. That was freaking me out too. And you lived on 64th, East 64th Street in New York, and I worked at Maxwell's Plum on East 64th Street. There was, oh, yeah. And you went to NYU, and my daughter's at Tisch right now. And Oh, that's great. Yeah, I went to NYU. Yes, I know. That's, uh, I yes, I know. Oh, but, we went, you and me, yes. No, 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 my daughter, my daughter's there now. She's, yes, I know. And so now, were you at Steinhardt? Was, were you in the music? You know, I... Yes, I was, because they honored me a number of years ago. They gave me this beautiful award and a luncheon. And then I thought that then they were going to have another little ceremony at night, and I thought I wasn't prepared at all. I thought, oh, well, it's just going to be like the little luncheon at, mm-hmm. at the Steinhardt building, which was lovely. Mm-hmm. But instead it was in this, like, I guess their major auditorium, Mm-hmm. And the dean was there, and he spoke, and it was like, oh my God, this is a this this is a school that I wasn't like um, an A plus student in, you know, <laughs> because my interest was always in music mm-hmm. and songwriting, and I was taking courses to learn to be a, a speech teacher. <laughs> but anyway, it was. I have a degree in drama education, and similar. But except, yeah. yeah, you went on to great success, and me not so much. Okay, so now you were in you were in the village at this time when singer songwriters were just everybody was playing. They, Oscar, everybody right? was just about emerging, you know. after people were, but singers continued to emerge. Oh yeah, I saw Carly Simon at the at the other end in 1973, I think it was, and she was terrified. It was one of her first shows. And well. She and I are good friends, and we've written together yeah. also later in my life experience, not when she was having hits, but um, but it didn't matter because just like with Carol King, I mean, the experience of hearing Carly was like, oh, my God, mm. Carly's even singing, you know. Um, but um, Were you part of that scene down in the village in those days? Was no, that part of your I world? Was, no, I, no, no. I, well, I was a little bit part of it. I'll tell you where I was part of it. Peter Allen, who I wrote with, who mm-hmm. was a very underestimated, I think, under under applauded uh, songwriter. Mm-hmm. He's also a really wonderful entertainer. He, he could he danced with the Rockettes at Radio City, and he, I remember him on top of the piano. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and Hugh Jackman mm-hmm. played him later in after. Peter, mm-hmm. unfortunately, died young of AIDS. And Peter uh, was portrayed by Hugh Jackman mm-hmm. in the show that ran on Broadway, mm-hmm. Boy From Oz. Mm-hmm. And half of the songs in that show I wrote with Peter. Yeah. Peter was fantastic. And 
Peter would sing in a club called Reno Sweeney. Mm-hmm. It was a small little club yeah. downtown mm-hmm. in the village, and it was a hot little club in that, you know, some of the singers of the time who looked like they were going to be really successful were singing down there. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and Peter used to try out his material there and sing there, and then eventually he moved into bigger venues like Radio City and um, and even, well, Carnegie Hall. But, mm-hmm. So, yes, I would go down there, but, I mean, Peter was fully alive. Peter mm-hmm. was just like complete energy and life and living each day to the fullest. And I was sort of watching him be alive, mm-hmm. you know, because I wasn't living my life to the fullest yet at that point. That was really early on in my fear cycle. So... Um, I know we're going in a circle a bit, but what I started to say when we went off, I went off track is that when my father died, my mother no longer saw me as anyone to compete with. Mm. Saw me instead as someone who maybe she could be proud of. I seemed to be having a hit. Uh-huh. You know? And then that moved on into, oh my God, my daughter writes hit songs. Not only does she write hit songs, she takes care of me. Mm-hmm. She buys me an apartment. I live very nicely. The only thing is, she wants to live 3,000 miles away. From me. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't like to be around me. Mm. You know, so that was sort of the way I did it. I mm-hmm. moved 3,000 miles to put what I thought was the needed space to even attempt to be alive mm-hmm. in this world without killing her, you know, because <laughs> um, that really is what it was about, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And and because um, I felt like she wanted to kill me. Mm. I yeah, that story at the beginning of the book with the bath when you were an infant. Tell tell that story. That yeah, that is yeah. just jo- oh my god. Well, I I'm only told the story. Right. I'll tell it. I'll tell it as I've been told. Mm-hmm. But I was about two years old when my mom was giving me a bath. When I suddenly slipped out of her hands like a bar of soap and got completely submerged, just fell into the water, where my mother screams, "Oh my God! Oh my God!" with her hands like in the air. The baby's <laughs> drowning and runs out to call for her girlfriend, Sally Held. Now, Sally is the one who told me this story. Right. She told it to me many, many times. Every time I saw her, I heard this story, so I know it's true. (laughs) And she said that if it wasn't for her, I would be dead because she ran in and saved me and pulled me out of the tub and laid me down in my bassinet and... um, and rubbed me and, you know, at which point she says that my mother put her face really close to mine, kissed me like on the forehead, I think, with her big red lipstick imprint, Mm -hmm. and looked at me really close and said, never scare me like that again. (laughs) God. Uh, So... This could be why I'm not a big bath person. Ah. <laughs> wow. You know, they say, Carol, that everybody marries their mother, whether we're, we're yes. male or female. 
So it's it so- it's sounding to me now, and from what I read, that if your mother perhaps a narcissist, and perhaps this perhaps she was, <laughs> and that perhaps this thing with Bert was marrying your mother again. Um, so, yes, yeah, and a little bit Marvin, <laughs> and a little bit Marvin. So so. But but th- these men these men that were narcissists also gave you a lot from from what I've read and yes. so so what was what was ha- t- tell us something happened tell us things that made you happy in your life periods that were really joyful. Well, my the real jo- I have to be honest the real joyful periods of my life began when I after the heartbreak of of Bert. Mm-hmm. I finally met this man who a year, two years before, I probably wouldn't have even looked at, mm. or certainly 10 years before I wouldn't have, because mm-hmm. he didn't look like the package. He didn't look like the bird package. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, oh, you know, he was just a nice-looking man, but he wasn't like, oh, my God, look what he looks like. Mm-hmm. And... And I probably would have run the other way also because he was a man. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a man who expected to and wanted to be with a woman. Mm-hmm. And his wife of 30 years left him. Um, he desperately tried to keep their marriage together, and it twice failed, and eventually she wanted to date, and uh, he just couldn't do that, mm-hmm. and I said, I think we should just get divorced. They should both date. Mm-hmm. Like, he couldn't deal with that at all. And mm-hmm. Finally, they, they were getting divorced. And here we meet each other by chance at a dinner party, and he asks if he can follow me home, because we were talking at the dinner party and mm-hmm. discovered that both of us were both dumped you know, we were the two dumpies. <laughs> and um, and the truth is, nobody would want to be with either one of us because we spent at least the first month or so just trading war stories. Mm. Oh, she put you through that. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, what did I tell you what he did to me? You know, it's like... <laughs> So who'd really want us as dates? You know, we weren't, <laughs> weren't we weren't, we weren't You weren't ready fun, yet. yeah. <laughs> we, we weren't through gr- grieving. Mm-hmm. And so I think we mourned together, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we bonded. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I knew almost immediately is that this was a different kind of man. I didn't know if, it, if I could be with him because mm-hmm. he was so different and from any man I knew, and he seemed to um, not um, indulge my my neuroses. Mm-hmm. Like I'd say, like, oh, I do you really want to go to that movie tonight? Because I feel like I'm getting a cold, and I've been sniff, I've been sneezing. Do you have a temperature? Do you have a fever? <laughs> No, I don't have a fever. Well, then let's go. (laughs) Well, I never had that. Well, I never, first of all, I never had a strong man in my life. Mm -hmm. Even my dad, who I loved dearly, was not strong. Mm -hmm. Because if he was, he would have stood up to my mother and said, that's enough. Cool it now. You know, Mm -hmm. enough. Quiet. 
Mm-hmm. He couldn't do that. He hid behind a newspaper, hoping she'd get softer, and she just got louder and louder. Mm. But um, anyway, um, so Bob was the first man in my life who was truly a man and a grown-up, and I had to make a decision. Can I show up for this? Mm-hmm. Can I become a grown-up? Mm-hmm. Because, in fact, I can't put all of the... Um, blame on the men I was with. Mm -hmm. I chose those men because I wasn't capable of being more. Mm -hmm. I wasn't capable of more intimacy, so I put it on them. Look how crazy they are. And I wasn't capable of being a complete uh, grown-up. So we were all artists, and we needed other people to come and sort of take care of us, you Mm -hmm. know, a housekeeper, an Mm -hmm. assistant. Mm -hmm. And... um, so the decision with Bob really is, are you up for this? This guy expects you to stand up, show up, put one foot in front of the other. Mm-hmm. And, and in doing so, and we did it for uh, five years before we married. Mm-hmm. One reason was because Bob is a traditionalist and he didn't want to marry before his daughter got married. Aww. And, uh, yeah, he's a sweet man, good mm-hmm. man. Wonderful man, um, but um, and you also—he's d- like the first major man in your life that you weren't creatively collaborating with. Correct? Like you had. Yes. In fact, he spent most of his uh, last ten years like turning down his kids' record players or turning them <laughs> off. In fact, because they were teenagers and mm-hmm. at the time, and they were, um, you know, playing loud, heavy metal, mm-hmm. and he couldn't bear it. And to this day, when I went in his car for the first time, he'd never had his car on FM radio. Oh, my God. And guess wow. what? Mm-hmm. It's still not. <laughs> I mean, when I put on music and we're driving, he goes, turn that off. <laughs> Bob, I, I want to listen to the music. Turn that off. You're driving. If he's driving with me. I want, you can't listen to the music and drive. Yeah. How, how has how has your um how has your songwriting changed through through this now happy grown up relationship? Well, I, the only song that I know that I definitely wrote that was a very big um, song in the, in the in the world of pop culture or universe or whatever we want to call it was with when I was with Bob was the prayer. And I wrote that with David Foster, a great, great uh, musician, friend. And um, it was recorded by Andrea Pacelli mm-hmm. and Celine Dion. And then many, many other mm-hmm. uh, great singers sang. You have to be you really yeah, yeah. called singing, I mean, because it has a very big range. And mm-hmm. when you hear Andrea and Celine sing it, it just takes you to a place that's greater than even... That has however good you thought the song is that you wrote, mm-hmm. this takes it somewhere other than you know, and um, so that was when I was with Bob, but um, and that was I was in a very happy period at the time, mm-hmm. but still, it was written for an animated film where the girl is going out on a journey and the mother sings a, a prayer, and I said, let's write a prayer for her, and David said, okay, and. Uh, we sat down and very effortlessly, in fact, I, he was playing something that I liked, and I said, 
Oh, play that again. Play that again. I, I really like that. Um, he played it again, and I said, how about, could you say, like, uh, I pray you'll be our eyes, and suddenly he had a little melody and, and singing it, and that's the way I love to write a song, where there's a little bit of, there's nothing there, and then two people sit in a room together, and one plays off the other, mm-hmm. who plays off the other, and suddenly there's a song, and it's one plus one equals three, and it's, or, you know, a half and a half equals more than one, if it's mm-hmm. great. And um, that's my favorite way of collaboration. And it seems like from what you've written in the book that so ma- like it blew my mind how effortless so many of your hits seem to have been written so quickly in 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 one sitting and and yeah till there was Bert <laughs> yes you very funnily described that <laughs> until there was Bert that was the end of effortless <laughs> in all things, effortless yeah. was thrown out. <laughs> Day I said hello, and he said, hello. Uh. (laughs) But, you know, they say that, too. They say that things that are meant to be are effortless, and that when things are difficult and we hit, like, these walls, that that's like the universe telling us to get the hell out of there, right? But we don't listen. Oh, there was a lot of universe talking to me, but I felt like, uh, if you remember that Steve Martin movie, The Man with Two Brains. Yeah. Um, he's about to marry this witchy, awful woman, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and he he looks up at the paint. His first wife has died, and he looks up at the painting of his first wife, and he's stand, sitting over the mantel, and he says, "Becca, Becca, if there's any reason I shouldn't marry this woman, give me a sign." And suddenly the chandeliers start shaking and the picture on the wall starts almost falling off and the walls are you know crackling and 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 he says and there's all horror music underneath the scene and he goes well all right then i'll just put you away (laughs) he walks out of the room and you know it's like it was like that i mean so many things were showing me yeah yeah not and yet you know yeah okay then let's go on but you had to go through all of that to appreciate bob i mean if you wouldn't have had oh, of course right if you wouldn't have had that experience you wouldn't end up where you are now which we're, we're almost at the end of, of our time i have a couple of last questions for you one is is there anything is there anyone you haven't written with yet that you aspire to? Is there any song you haven't written yet that you dream of? Is there any award you haven't won? Is there anything that you still covet? I would love to write songs with Adele mm. or with um, Bruno Mars. Mm. Oh, I want to hear that song. But, you know, the truth is Adele is pretty self-contained, mm-hmm. you know. So there'd be very little reason for her to say, "Oh yeah, let's go collaborate." Mm-hmm. As as is um, Bruno Mars, and as are so many of the new artists that I do, you know, have a, um, a sense of connection with. Mm-hmm. Um, so it that's why I started painting. I think because I love your painting well, of the grilled cheese sandwich. Recently, by the way. I did, 
Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Very recently, I wrote a song with Babyface, Kenny uh-huh. Babyface Edmonds, and Bruce Roberts, which was Hillary Clinton's uh, theme song. It was <gasps> called Stronger Together. Oh, gosh. I didn't even realize yeah. that was yours. Yes. Wow. And, uh, it was wildly fun to, to hear it play when the balloons dropped after she made her acceptance speech for the nomination. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so, um, anyway. Um, okay, so last question. So this is the humanizing question for, for my heroes. Do you have any guilty pleasures, Carol? I'm going to assume you do because you, liked, you, you like food, but aside, is there yeah. anything? Is <laughs> aside there any, from food? Well, you know, I, my guilty pleasure is Cheetos. I, I have a bunch of guilty pleasures, but that's one of mine. But do you have any guilty pleasures that you still indulge in at all? Well, if it was foods, it would be like macaroni and cheese, mm. and uh, and also a variety of different cakes and cookies. And, <laughs> but um, other than that, um, I play some mindless games on the computer. Oh yeah, like what do you like? I, I play a game called Bejeweled Blitz uh-huh. with my girlfriend Mindy, <laughs> and uh, we see about who scores the highest. <laughs> Yeah, this is completely mindless. <laughs> and um, I watch Scandal, although I think it's getting a little tiresome for me. It hasn't come back on the air yet. I haven't decided. But, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I like the Big Bang Theory, but I think that's kind of smart, actually, yeah. um, the writing. But guilty, guilty, guilty pleasures. Well, it's always going to be food. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's always going to be food-related um, well, I love my, I love to hang out with my little doggies and just pet them and have them just lay in bed with me. That's a that's a lovely pleasure. I don't know that you have to feel guilty about. Yeah, you don't have to feel guilty about that one. That's pretty wonderful. Well, Carol, I want to thank you so much, and I I cannot encourage people out there enough to run and get they're playing our song it's just a phenomenal book i'm enjoy- i i can't i'm, I'm so excited because now we're done and i can go home and i can finish the book and i'm <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled thank so you sweet. so much yeah, i enjoyed this really so much it. it's it's been my absolute pleasure and um i am going to hound you until i get you into the living room to do women Who right. okay all right one of these days definitely Great. thank you so much thank you carol Great. take care bye bye so, so DJ Wheezy, um, what a lovely woman. And, you know, I didn't know her coming in. As I said, reading her book, I felt like I got to know her. I feel like I, I like, I, I love her. I feel, and I, what I didn't say at the top of the show is that I've exchanged, but I found Carol on Facebook. That's how we started chatting. And every message that she wrote me, she ended with an X and an O. She, I love her. She's okay. So the takeaway with we Carol. We her. We so e- we much. We do. We XO her. Yes. So for the takeaway for Carol for me is interesting. It's it's not we didn't talk as much about ambition and career path as we talked about the actual events and but then the, the deep seated underneath stuff, which we haven't talked that much about in the past, which I found really fascinating. But for me, Carol's whole journey has been about validating herself Mm. and to find love and that sort of everything is about validation that she didn't get from her mother 
and and from a lot of the men in her life who made her feel less than and I think she was motivated by that quest to be heard as she said was important to her and to be loved she she knew she was enormously talented and she was always gently persistent despite her debilitating fears she just kept walking which and was amazing too yeah yeah she had all these incredible insecurities it's so heroic but, but right? she the one thing that she wasn't insecure about she said the only time she didn't feel her fears was when she was writing songs yeah that's she, when it all and there was a big highlight on collaboration i thought yeah a huge the, the, the amount that she puts into sharing the experience with people i thought was really incredible i think she's a big people reader yeah, yeah. and and i thought one of the coolest things i thought about that was actually when she said how um phil collins she liked her his version better than her own no it wasn't well, her own. well no it wasn't her own it was it was she didn't sing the original right. version but but, 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 but yeah. it was her song yeah right? it was yes yeah. And and I've never heard an artist say where they preferred someone else's remake or whatever or, or version of their own thing. So I thought that was really cool. That that is cool. That and she, that is an interesting point. And yeah. and in the book, she actually she always wanted chooses to collaborate. She never wanted to write alone. I think there was mm-hmm. one period where she had to write alone a little bit. And she didn't like it. Yeah. She didn't like it. She, she loves the process of just really kind of creating something together. Yeah, and I think you know she was missing that growing up. In the family, so I think she ah. kind of built her own family. Oh, I love that's right. Along there, you go. You know, that's that, right. That got her through everything. That mm-hmm. intimate connection that she didn't have with her mother, yeah. she created in her in her craft. She's a family finder. She's, <laughs> and that's why she was always yeah. seeking kind of boyfriends or husbands that also wrote. But her her best love with was with someone who didn't need that from her. Mm-hmm. He just wanted her. And also through her maturing, she didn't need that anymore. Right. She didn't need to have that creative connection because she was able to just be a woman mm-hmm. with him because he was a man. Beautiful. I love it. This was a fabulous show. I loved every minute, every second of this. Thank you guys so much. And I can't wait uh, to go home and read. <laughs> and then come back next week and do another The Road Taken next Tuesday. Come on back. Um, I look forward to seeing you guys next Tuesday, every Tuesday. But in between those Tuesdays, you can find me at VickiAbelson.com. V-I-C-K-I-A-B-E-L-S-O-N. 